0: As we jump into our next passage in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24, and actually just going through 30 today. If I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Brian, and I'm the assistant pastor here and church planner at Oak City Church in Bartow. Send you greetings from your daughter church, and it's a privilege to be able to open the word. Uh, with you this this morning. Let's jump into Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. And from there he arose, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, "Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." But she answered him, "Yes, lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs." And he said to her, "For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter." And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Lord, thank you that you are good and you are gracious and you make all things new. Lord, teach us even now as we jump into your word. Lord, show us our brokenness, but show us your healing. Show us your grace. Show us your glory even more. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to introduce you to Kentsugi. Maybe some of you have never heard that before. I just learned of it a couple of weeks ago at a conference. We've got a few pictures I want to put up here on the screen. That's my cue. There we go. All right. So check out these pictures. You can see these this particular vase. The gold lines through it, let's go to the next one. Kind of get a picture again, a little bit bigger chunk. And then the next one. All right, and we can just keep that one up there so you can focus on it. Kintsugi literally means golden joinery. This is ancient Japanese art where they take broken pottery, a vase or a bowl, and they put it back together with this special lacquer that's mixed with gold, uh, or a gold substance, looks like gold, or silver, or, or platinum. And notice in that, I mean, if, if we break something very precious and special to us, if we choose to try to repair it, usually we're trying to go with something clear, so you don't see the cracks, right? But this type of art is highlighting the cracks, right? It's showing you every area that broke in all the different pieces, and it's highlighting the cracks in the brokenness through, in this case, the beautiful gold bonding agent. So the flaw is seen as a unique piece of the object's history, and now it's new beauty. I just think it's such a beautiful, cool uh, type of art. Matter of fact, I, I, I found out that people love this so much that people are actually taking hopefully nothing priceless right, but taking their pottery and they're breaking it just to do this because I love the color. I think that kind of defeats the purpose, but it just shows how much people are grabbing onto this. So this was a very interesting type of art that I've learned about uh, recently. You know, as we've been going through the gospel of Mark, uh, we have been witnessing how Jesus uh, has been touching people that according to the ceremonial laws and according to the cultural laws uh, are a lot like these pieces of of broken pottery, at least in the eyes of the people around them. They're broken. They're needy. Uh, A lot of them have been cast aside from the society because they're unclean. They've been cast aside by the religious leaders because they can't worship. They're unclean. Uh, They've been marginalized And Jesus is attracted to the broken, and we've seen thus far Jesus going to these individuals who are, you know, in in the society's eyes are deemed as damaged goods, and he touches them with his grace. Let me just remind you, and we haven't looked at all these here at Strong Tower, but thus far in the Gospel of Mark, we've looked at a, a man with an unclean spirit. We'll see a little girl with an unclean spirit today. We've looked at the sick in general. We've looked at the demon-possessed, we've looked at the disease, we've looked at the leper, we've looked at the paralytic, we've looked at tax collectors and sinners, we looked at a man with a withered hand, we looked at a woman who had an issue with blood, and we even looked at a dead girl. And again, from a ceremonial perspective, these are all considered unclean, untouchable, damaged goods. But what we're going to see today is that Jesus touches the unclean, and instead of the unclean infecting him with their uncleanliness, he infects them with his holiness and his healing and his grace. And that's the beauty of the gospel. You see, rather than concealing the damage and the brokenness, Jesus accentuates the damage and the brokenness and scars, not only in the life of this family today, but in our own lives. By his grace, his glory, his gospel, his goodness, his holiness breaks through and shines through all of our scars. And Jesus is in the business of making all things new. And he's done it in our lives and he does it in the life of this individual here. Thank you for those pictures. Check that out, really cool art. So, we're jumping into our text here, a little bit of the context here. Verse 24 says this, that Jesus... Arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Um, I was supposed to preach the other passes last week, but the other passes last week basically, Jesus is sparring with the religious leaders and they're talking about what's clean and unclean, and they're getting mad at Jesus' disciples because they're not washing their hands and they're not living up to, to the religious leaders' uh, standards. And Jesus has challenged them. He says, Listen, it's not what comes out of your body that makes you unclean, it's what's inside. He says that you guys are so focused on washing your hands and washing these bowls and all this kind of stuff, but you're missing the point that your heart needs to be washed. It needs to be clean. You need to be made new. And so Jesus has been you know, going with the religious leaders. He is exhausted. And Jesus is going uh, outside of the boundaries of Israel. The, first, the only time you see In the Lord's public ministry, where he goes outside the boundaries of ancient Israel, and he goes into a pagan land, he goes into this area of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre was about 20 miles to the northwest of Capernaum, where Jesus was previously ministering when he was sparring with the religious leaders. Uh, Sidon was a bit farther north. It was in that general region. Today, these cities are modern-day Lebanon, in the area of Lebanon. Uh, the Jewish rabbis uh, said of that region that Jesus uh, was going into, Tyre and Sidon, uh, it was committed to the gross paganism and idolatry. A matter of fact, if you know the, the, the uh, queen, the wicked queen Jezebel of the Old Testament, who, who just uh, killed all the prophets and, and sparred with Elijah, she was from this area. A very wicked uh, part, a very wicked uh, region that Jesus goes to. Why does he go to it? It says here in this passage, if you look with me, he entered into a house and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Jesus was going to retreat from the ministry to get rest. So often we see that Jesus goes to a desolate place to to pray and to be recharged spiritually, but he also went off to get recharged physically because Jesus is 100% God, but he's 100% man and he gives us a great model and shows us that we need physical and spiritual rest. Ministry is exhausting. I learned that the hard way last week, where Jesus said, "I'm going to make you rest. I'm going to put you in bed for four or five days." Because guess what? We're not just souls; we we are bodies, and we need rest. And the, and God God Himself, when He created all things six days, on the seventh day He rested. And Jesus gives us an example of the importance of rest. But I always find it interesting when Jesus goes off to find rest; He's always confronted with someone who has a need, even in His his need for physical rest, he doesn't push away those who have needs because his love and his compassion just comes through. And he didn't want anyone to know because he was trying to get rest. That's probably why he went to this region of Tyre Sidon. The first time he went outside the ancient borders of Israel because he figured, well, I'll have a low profile here. People won't know me as well, but that wasn't true because his popularity had expanded. And his miracles had expanded. And sure enough, he meets a woman who has a great need. The first thing I want us to see here today is this desperate plea of this woman. We see that in verses 25 and 26. This woman comes to Jesus, and she has a daughter with an unclean spirit. Later on, we'll see that this unclean spirit is a demon-possessed spirit. Um, again, there's this theme of being unclean that runs through this whole chapter of Mark 7. Um, but really the focus of this passage is the woman who comes to Jesus, really not, not the daughter. And if you notice here that Mark really highlights, he really, he begins to kind of show us the cracks of this woman in her life. Uh, he, he, he tells us, he describes her in, in three ways. One, uh, he says that she is a woman. And you may or may not know that women in, in this time were seen as second class. Uh, this was a culture where women did not own property or could testify in court. And so a woman's opinion or presence was not of any value. Okay? So from a cultural standpoint, that would be considered a crack, if you will. She was also a Gentile. Your, your passage may say Greek, meaning that she was part of an area that, that, that Alexander the Great had come in and conquered, and she is not a Jew. She's not ethnically Jewish. We can't underestimate the prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles and the violence between them. Um, there's a parallel passage I'll reference a few times in Matthew 15. Matthew calls her a Canaanite. And again, if you know anything about the Old Testament, the Canaanites were the enemies of God's people. Again, thinking about Jezebel. It says she, she was a Sarah Phoenician woman. And this is just simply telling us the area where she was born that had been previously uh, occupied by Syrian and Phoenician cultures. So what what Mark is trying to show us is from a cultural standpoint, from a religious standpoint, this woman didn't have anything going for her. She didn't deserve anything. She was considered to be this broken vase, this broken bowl with cracks in it, and um, she was cast aside, but not by Jesus. Praise God for that. Notice her posture. Notice what Mark says. This woman came and she, uh, she fell down at his feet, as it says in verse 25. She was paying homage to a Jesus. She, was, she, she had heard about his reports, about what he had done, all of his healings. She was revering him for being this, this holy man who has this holy power, so she falls down on her knees. But yet, it's also a sign of just abject desperation, is it not? I think we can relate to this woman whether we have children or not. This woman was absolutely desperate. She would do anything to save her daughter. And so she falls on her knees and she begs Jesus because she realizes that he is likely her last hope for the redemption of her little girl who was demon possessed. Her last hope was a touch of this man who, who, who hopefully would go to her house and, and, and touch this child and heal it as he's done before. So she falls down on her knees, and then it says she begged him. And the original language there, it's this idea that the intent is that she continued to beg him. She wouldn't stop begging him. She, she's pleading with him over and over and over again. Matter of fact, if you look in the parallel passage of Matthew, it says the disciples finally was like, Jesus, do something. Send her away. It's this idea that she didn't just once say, hey, please, Jesus, help me, and just kind of wait. She wouldn't stop. It was getting really awkward. Jesus, are you going to do something about it? She was consistently pleading with Jesus. Why? Because she was committed to the rescue of her daughter and she would not take no for an answer. It's the second time we've seen a parent who is desperate for their child. Jairus Jairus was the first one. Jairus was the president of the synagogue whose son was, was sick. He was going to die. He didn't have demon possession, but he had a fever or something that was going to die. And so we see the contrast of that Jesus not only uh, loves and cares for the Jewish religious elite, but he cares for the Gentile, low and broken. How does Jesus respond? We see a desperate plea. Secondly, we see an incredibly difficult reply. Look with me in verses 26 and 27. Now, again, it helps to parallel with Matthew chapter 15 because what this passage doesn't say is that Jesus was silent, but if you look in Matthew 15, uh, verse 23, it says, he did not answer her a word. We kind of pick up on that, the fact that she keeps begging Jesus, and the disciples are like, Jesus, you're going to do something about it, right? Matthew says he doesn't say a word, he's quiet, he's silent. Now, Why? What's up with that? Why is God silent? That seems to be incredibly insensitive. It seems to be incredibly cruel. But if you know Jesus and you know the scriptures, you know that's not his character. So there's got to be a reason why Jesus is being silent. Let me propose two. One, he wanted to test the genuineness of this, the genuineness of this lady's faith. Um, he was probably reluctant to act immediately on this woman's behalf. Uh, because in this culture, in this part of the world, there were miracle workers all over doing some some amazing things. Um, they attracted popular followings. And Jesus wanted to test the, the genuineness of her faith to see, does she really want me or does she just want this miracle? Does she really going to trust in me and what I can do? Or is she just looking at me as just another miracle worker? When the commentator says this, the power of God, however is properly released, not in a context of superstition and magic, but in response to faith. The power of God, however, is properly released, not in a context of superstition and magic, but in response to faith. Right? Jesus didn't want this woman just to look at him as this magic prayer box, this magic prayer machine. Just, just, just do this for me. As, as desperate she is, there was something greater that Jesus wanted. And this leads into my second reason why I think he was silent. He wanted the woman to love him and have a genuine relationship with him. He wanted the woman, he wanted to love the woman and have a genuine relationship with her. One of, uh, it, it's, I know a lot of you have studied Paul, Paul, Paul Miller's person of Jesus and praying life. He's got some great stuff in there. And one of the things in his, his person of Jesus is he talks about the three steps of love. The first step of love is looking right? The second step of love is feeling and having compassion. And then the third step of love is acting. And he traces through several stories in the Gospels how Jesus would first look at an individual, and he would see their brokenness and see their need, and then his heart would be filled with compassion, and then he would go and act, and he would heal. And, and one of the things that, that it helps understand that is that our tendency, ours to say, my tendency is to skip over the looking and the compassion and go straight to acting. How can I fix this person? How can I fix my wife? How can I fix my children and not actually stop and listen and love and be moved with compassion? Jesus always stopped and looked and listened, felt compassion, then acted. I think that's what's happening here. That Jesus, in not immediately responding to the woman, even though she consistently begged and begged and begged, is that he wanted to know that woman. He wanted to listen to that woman. He wanted to love her And and understand her situation, even though he's God, but understand her heart and have compassion on her before he went in to actually act. Jesus was more committed uh, to the relationship with this woman than just acting and healing this daughter. So how do you, how do we interpret the silence of God in our own desperation? I think we all can relate to this, Right? We can all relate to crying out to God in our prayers and begging and begging and begging and feel like there's complete silence. Is that God being cruel? Is that God being careless? Is that God not showing compassion? No, I would argue just as I just did. It's the the opposite. As much as Jesus wants to love us by helping our need, he is more concerned about having a relationship with us because he knows that he is our greatest need. He wants to have a relationship with his children because he knows that he is our greatest need. Once again, Paul Paul, Paul Miller writes this, If the miracle comes too quickly, there is no room for discovery and for relationship. With both this woman and us, Jesus is engaged in a divine romance, wooing us to himself. The waiting, that is the essence of faith, provides the context for relationship faith and relationship are interwoven in dance. When God seems silent and our prayers go unanswered, the overwhelming temptation is to leave the story, to walk out of the desert, and to attempt to create a normal life. But when we persist in a spiritual vacuum, when we hang in there during ambiguity, we get to know God. What he's saying there is part of developing a relationship with the Lord and building faith is waiting and is trusting, even when it seems like he's silent. Well, this woman won't stop. She won't give up. She keeps begging and begging and begging until Jesus says something, and that leads us to a second response, and this is a major curveball. All right, let's jump in there. Let's look at verse 27. What's it say? And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, there you go. That makes complete sense, right? Wow. This is one of the hardest sayings of Jesus and one of the most confusing sayings of Jesus. There are so many different cultural interpretations of this, as I've learned, that there are people, well, this is Jesus being misogynistic, he hates women, he's being a bigot, he's being a racist... He, he's, he, this Jesus needs to repent of his racism. I mean, this is, these are strong words. These are strong, strong words. But just to encourage you, as you study God's word and you get to difficult passages like this, there are certain rules of biblical interpretation. And I want to offer a couple of them to you here today. One would be uh, scripture interprets scripture, okay? Clearer parts of scripture help with the harder parts of scripture, so, if you were to uh, want to go down that trail of that Jesus just, he hates women, he's being misogynistic, he hates Gentiles, then you have to look at the other parts of Scripture to see, is that true? Does this live up to Jesus' character? And if you know Jesus, and you know, you know the, the story of Jesus, what the gospels say, you realize that's not true at all. That would be out of Jesus' character. Matter of fact, Jesus opened doors for women in ministry, Right? The, the women were the first ones that see the, the resurrected Jesus. They were, Mary sat at Jesus' feet and could learn from him. They had a prominent role in his ministry, right? And so we know, as you study the Word of God, that, that Jesus had a special ministry to women, the woman at the well and others. We know that, that this was not the only Gentile that Jesus loved and cared for. So again, you got to go to other parts of Scripture and let Scripture interpret Scripture and realize that it can't be that he is trying to be racist, misogynistic. There must be a clear reason. Secondly, it's important to look at the original text. Now, I realize not not a lot of people here can read Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew in the Old Testament, but there are tons of tools out there, and there's lots of commentary. So it helps when you begin to, to, to dig into the original languages languages and see what words are being used here? Okay, I'll pick back up with that in a second. But let's just jump in with the, the, with the English that we have in front of us because it, Jesus uses the word dogs, and that doesn't sound very loving, right? It's not a compliment. And in most cases, during this time, in most cases in, in ancient Israel, dogs were not pleasant. Uh, they weren't those companions that we have in our homes today. Uh, They were scavengers, right? They'd feed off of trash and and carcasses. Uh, They were filthy animals. Um, I've been in big cities uh, overseas, and if you have too, you see that so often dogs are all over the place, just running wild, defecating everywhere, just eating trash. So you kind of get a picture of that's what was going on in in, in ancient Israel. Um, Even biblically, when Jesus is talking about um, those who will... Reject the gospel, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Um, when Jesus gives the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he talks about it was dogs that were licking the sores of Lazarus. Okay, so one of the worst insults during this time and even now would be to call someone a dog. Um, the rabbis and their extreme uh, prejudice against the uh, Gentiles. Talked about the Gentiles in this way the peoples of the world are like dogs. Uh, Paul refers to his opponents, uh, those who were uh, opposing the gospel, as dogs in Philippians 3 2. So, just looking at those biblical comparisons, we might kind of think, oh, okay, it sounds like Jesus is using dog in a pejorative, nasty way. But The original language there has a little bit different word, and I wish our English came out with that a little bit clearer. The New King James Version has, I think, the best uh, translation. It says little dogs because this is a different word from the general word dog. Okay? So the general word for dog, uh, Chiron, is different from this word, Chinarian, excuse me, which means a small dog, a little dog, and it was the idea of a domesticated dog, much like what we'd have in our house today. So there were dogs like that. Matter of fact, I was probably Google listening into in my conversations or my studies, but a, a, uh, a podcast popped up on my phone talking about the domestication of dogs. I mean, come on, really? But it was cool. I actually listened to it, and it talked about how the archaeologists found the bones of ancient Israelites, and one of them holding a little dog. Dead in the, th- I mean, there you go, right? Unless the dog went after him, I don't know. But but the point is that there was a distinction between the scavenger dogs and these domesticated dogs, and the word that Jesus used here is the latter. And I wish our translation here would, would give some more um, clarity on that. So it helps us at least initially realize, okay, he's not trying to be cruel. He's not saying something about the dignity of this woman, but it seems like Jesus is talking about the priority of his mission and what he's trying to do. Now let's look at it again. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So he's not saying, I'm not going to feed you, but he said there's a priority here. And what Jesus is saying here is that my mission here is to come and to reach God's people, the Jews, who would then go and reach reach the Gentiles. Okay, doesn't mean that you don't have any dignity, value, or worth. It just means there is a priority here, and my priority is to go to the Jews first. Okay, so whether you have dogs or not, I think you understand that. Um, I I have I've had two in 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 my marriage, and uh, when my oldest son was our first child, um, and he was. You know, eating as a baby, of course, we'd teach him, you know, to not throw his food on the floor, but, you know, we'd say, no, no, and he would say, no, no, and what would we do? He'd throw it on the floor, right? Well, guess where my dog, lady, my golden retriever, would sit? Right at the feet of his high chair because he knew my child was a sinner. He knew he was going to rebel, and he ate the crumbs right there, right? We get that. We understand that, right? Now, it would be unusual and cruel if I was feeding my son Hudson at one years old, and I'm doing the here's the airplane with, you know, his sandwich or whatever it was, and I fake him out and I throw it to my dog and let him eat it first, right? Why? Because the priority for me is to care and to feed my son, my child first, and then I'm going to feed the dog. As much as I love the dog, and I love that dog. It was difficult when that dog died, right? She was my first baby. But even though I had her longer than I had my children, my priority was my son. All right. So that helps us, right, to understand a little bit what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that there is a priority. There is an order here. Now, check out how this woman responds. Her determined faith. She doesn't even miss a beat, and she gets it. It's really cool. Look at at what she says. But she answered him, verse 28, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark, no, it wasn't his disciples that understood his parables. It was the first time that this Gentile woman understood the purpose of his parable. She entered into the parable and she said, I know who I am and I know who you are. And she gives this incredible response, right? Right? Throws down that royal flush and says, yes, but I know your mission is not just for the Jews. It's for people like me. And I know you're here for me. And, this, and that is so true. She, she gets the gospel. She gets the fact that from the beginning of time when, when Adam and Eve were created, the whole purpose was that their glory would advance, the, the the boundaries of Eden so that the glory of God would cover the world as the waters cover the sea. And then Abraham came and he was a father of many nations to go and take the gospel of the nations. And it was Israel's job, Psalm 96, Psalm 67, that you would uh, uh, declare the glory of God to the nations. Go out and be that conduit Israel to the Gentiles so that they may know that I am God. And Israel failed and they failed and they failed and failed. And so Jesus came, the perfect true Israel, to do that very thing. And then God's people finally get it. We see that in Pentecost and Acts. And they go out and they turn the world upside down because they carry out the mission of God. But it was always the plan that Israel would be the conduit to take the gospel to the nations. Listen to what Isaiah 49, 6 says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This woman got it. This woman understood the advancement of the gospel. This woman understood her greatest need is Jesus. And the Lord sees her faith. As a matter of fact, Matthew 15 says, Oh woman, how great is your faith. That of all peoples, you get it. Not the religious leaders, not even my disciples, but you. You who according to the world is broken and, and should be cast aside and has cracks all in you. You are the one that understands the glory of the gospel. And Jesus rewards her faith. Um, that he granted to her, and her daughter is healed. Kinsugi, think about those pictures we had up earlier, and the beauty of the gospel. And the gospel says that that it, it is the, uh, the the weak things of the world that Jesus chooses, that Jesus loves. As a matter of fact, let me read that beautiful passage in First Corinthians chapter one. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. According to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, Righteousness is sanctification and redemption. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, so often we as Christians, we don't want to to put our broken pieces in our life together with something that's going to shine like like those gold join, uh, joinery and joints. We want to use that clear, you know, super glue. Because we don't want people to see our cracks and bruises. We don't want to see that. But what God is saying is, listen, 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 listen. I want you to shine my glory and your grace through your brokenness so that other people may see you and not, not praise you, but praise me, boast in me and my work and what I've done. And that's what we see in this example of this woman here. I think about the Apostle Paul when he's you know, begged for, for, for God, to, for Jesus to take away the thorn. What's he say? He says, no, Like he says, my grace is sufficient. In your weakness, my power is made perfect. That's the beauty of the gospel and that's what we need to, to, to bask in. And that yet Jesus himself, who came and created us and heals us, he can do that because he himself was broken, because he was shattered on the cross, because he took upon the wrath of God. He was that vessel that took all the punishment that we deserve so that you can have healing and be made new in him. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's what we see here today. There's never a day we can stand on our own two feet of performance before God because it's always the work of his grace and his goodness. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you that you love us, that you don't reject us. Lord, there's beauty in our brokenness as we just sung. Uh, and, Father, the beauty is you. It's not us. Forgive us, Father, when we hide our brokenness because we want to... Um, continue this performance-based kind of life that so much, so many of us are used to and yet we don't want to communicate and show and uh, the, your glory through our brokenness and your healing and so Father right now I just pray for those here who are are hurting and Father there has been silence in their prayers that you would bolster their faith just as you did this woman To show them that you love them, you care for them, and that you love them enough to quietly listen and look and wait and be filled with compassion before you act. And Lord, we don't know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, if you're going to heal in the way that we want or not. But ultimately, Lord, we know that you are our greatest need. And ultimately we will look like you one day and all things we've made new. And Lord, we just ask that you would give us the endurance and perseverance to not give up, but to believe in your goodness, to believe in your healing, believe that you are making all things new. And Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.